Blake and I were talking about watermelon and water leaks, so you've got you to focus. Welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And I'm not sure how you feel about rainy days, especially when it's like rip-roaring down. But it reminds me that my sins are washed away. And Gail and I visited the Ark Museum uh, up near Cincinnati, and it was an incredible experience. Just, just being there, you can see it out in the distance. The thing is huge. But while we were there, she, her phone kept going off with these warnings of flood warnings. <laughs> yeah, and I'm thinking, and it was, it was a downpour. There was three inches of water in the parking lot. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking, this is better than Walt Disney. How did they plant? They must go through a lot of water every time a visitor comes. But it made us think of this if you're back in Noah's day, they didn't have rain. That's why God put the rainbow up in the sky, even though some groups have co-opted this incredible symbol of God withholding his judgment, his bow of judgment, whenever it rains. Because if you had lived back then, you would be terrified whenever it rained because the last time it had rained, or the first time, they're one and the same, everybody got wiped out. That would be PTSD on steroids. So when I go through the rain, I think about my sins are washed clean as snow. And I love that old hymn, and I'm not asking you to play it, and I'm not going to sing it either. Um, okay. But we're clean. And if you haven't repented of your sins and asked Jesus Christ to forgive you, you can do that right now in the service and be washed clean, white as snow. And if you were in the adult Sunday school class, I gave a little testimony. I'm a different person because of what Jesus Christ did. And if he could save me, he can save you. Amen. Some announcements. Um, immediately after church, you have your chance to be on American Idol. No, um, we're redoing our website, and we have been praying for years to upgrade from canned music to good music, and we have good music, but we also have more AV stuff where you can actually hear the service now. One thing we're doing is looking outward to the world that finds out about us through the Internet. So Paul Kenamore and his two very capable daughters and his whole production team have been redoing our website and today we need some headshots, or not really headshots, but some adult ministry class shots. So we're going to set up a fake classroom right after church. So if you're an adult and you can hang around after you're visiting, please do so. It'll be quick. Um, and ladies, we're wanted where do you want them to meet you? Right here. The adults are going to be in here, um, and we'll have a we'll have a, a whiteboard up here like we had class last week. Um, so just hang around and be adults going to school. Ladies are going to meet in the cottage also for some quick shots for ladies' Bible study. And the elders are going to have some headshots over in the cottage. And I'm so thankful they can do Photoshop. And I've been telling people, I've been begging Paul, please, 
put Charles Spurgeon's head on pastor's body. Blake, you can be John MacArthur. Jerry, Paul Washer, is that okay? Yeah. And I'm like, please, don't make me curly. Okay. Some other announcements so I don't cut into pastor's time. Ladies will have Bible study tomorrow night in the cottage. Men are meeting Tuesdays at Dunkin' Donuts at, at 6 in the morning, and they're talking through 1 Peter. And moms and dads and, and kids, there's youth choir practice after church today in the cottage. In the, no, in the, in the apartment building in the choir room. I should know that. And I believe that's all the announcements I've stumbled through. So. Well, I think he stumbled well. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're a tough act to follow, that's for sure. What do you call you to worship Christ today. We'll be communing with Christ, and as I've mentioned before, you don't have to actually be a member of this congregation. Some have a closed communion. Ours is open. If you're in Christ, if you're obedient to him, you can participate in communion, and I'll instruct you in a bit on how to receive communion. We'll gather up front, take both elements, return your seat, and wait. Uh, but I want us to prepare, and also for those at home as well. We have some that are ill or some that are traveling that always watch and are key in. So I want to change this up a little bit here at the beginning in preparation for communion with Christ. And you can prepare as well. If you notice here in your worship folder, I have uh, right after this call of worship to for congregational prayer. And by that, I mean uh, we're going to play a little background music for you guys so that some of the distractions will be put aside. But I want to give you a little extra time to prepare your heart to worship Christ today, not just for communion, but this Lord's Day as you come to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, to truly worship him. So take this time as a time of reflection, as uh, prayer. Uh, you might want to look through this uh, description of the uh, of the communion as Paul reflects on it here one notable thing we're called to do is to examine verse 28 ourselves and then eat and drink and so you don't have to perform any particular rituals to receive the communion but you do need to examine your heart and and confess sin and Recognize that he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. To then do what? Then to, to receive and to remember Christ. So I'm going to give you a moment now. You can pray. You can think on this scripture. I, you might just want to close your eyes and listen to the hymn, and, and you, it'll be familiar. And you can think about what it is expressing. It, the, the goal here is for you just to prepare your heart to worship Christ. I'll give you a moment to do that privately, right where you're at. If you want to bow your head, close your eyes, if you want to read the scriptures, however you wish to prepare to worship Christ today, I'm going to leave that to you. And then I'll read a scripture briefly, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll receive communion. So let's refl reflect and take the time now to think on Christ. Thank you. 
Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we come to you boldly to the throne of grace, boldly because of our union with Jesus Christ our Lord. It is through Christ and Christ alone that you will hear our prayer, our confession of sin, our call in ourselves to, in our desire to be consecrated to Christ. All of this is a work of your marvelous grace. May that be increasingly revealed to us. Your grace, like wave after wave, is more abundant than we could ever know, than we can ever sense. We're thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who's given us a promise that fulfills all that is required of your holy law. One who lived in absolute perfection, actually fulfilling the law, not to earn anything. He already merited all, but proved it by the measure of a righteous standard. And it's that righteous standard by which we must have to stand before you. And so we praise your holy name for sending the Son to to live and fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. And then to take our sin away through his own blood. That covenant that is made, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. We can never be grateful enough, Lord, for the atonement that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord where every sin is covered, every unrighteousness has been atoned for through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we gather now to worship and truly remember these great truths, I pray that they would be increasingly known to us as we solemnly take and partake on these reminders, these symbols of this beauty of this great truth, and as we reflect and think forward to even a greater joyous day when we will commune with Christ anew in your kingdom. I pray that you will bless the elements, the bread, and the cup. May these symbols truly remind us of your grace, your mercy, your love, your faithfulness forever and ever. In Christ's name, amen. We'll go ahead and receive the elements, as I mentioned, and by our routine, we'll have this side stand, come forward, receive both elements, and then circle around and return, middle, and then this aisle, and I'll direct you. Let's go ahead and receive these elements now. This side will stand and Then return to your seat and let's wait to receive them together.
few elements as we've mentioned, bread and the cup. The bread, his life, his body, a life of perfect righteousness, the life by which we will stand before God in the perfection of Christ with no mixture of our human effort which only would stain the beauty of his divine perfections. Receive this in remembrance of him. The second aspect, which is another glorious and beauty, and that is the covering of our sin. The atoning, by covering it is the truly washing away the cleansing that is made possible through the blood of Christ, the only thing that will wash away my sin, to stand before God in perfection because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Receive this cup in his blood, the cup of the new covenant, in remembrance of him. Christ says that he will, he will not drink. He's waiting, symbolically, to drink it anew with you in his Father's kingdom, a kingdom which we know he is currently ruling and reigning. And so on this side, though it may look bleak at times, we remember that indeed, God is our mighty fortress. Jesus Christ reigns. Let's stand and sing together that hymn as Blake comes to lead us, as we're reminded about the mighty fortress who is our God, 656 in your hymn book.
534. 534, take my life and let it be consecrated. Consecrate yourself and be holy, Leviticus 27. Five, five, two, five hundred and fifty-two. My Jesus, I love thee. We'll sing together the first and the fourth. Women and girls will sing verse two only, and verse three will be the men and the boys. We love because he first loved us. First John four nineteen. Five hundred and fifty-two.
Good morning, church. It's great to be here this morning to worship the Lord. Um, I wonder, could we turn to Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 39? That's uh, page 921 in the Pew Bible. So far in our reading of the book of Acts, we have studied the record of a couple of notable sermons, particularly the first sermon of Peter, as well as the last sermon of the martyr, Stephen. Today we look at the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. It's about 10 years since his conversion on the road to Damascus. It's the Sabbath day. Paul is in the synagogue in Antioch. His audience consists of both Jews and Gentile God-fearers. Paul reviews the events of the Old Testament and takes only eight verses to get to Jesus the Savior. Let's read verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled concerning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written in him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. But 
God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that has what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. That verse 39, 38, 39, so wonderful. Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that this man, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And it's just wonderful. That's a very brief summary, but Paul expanded that in Romans and in Galatians. Let's this, this go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us this historical account of your servant Paul, this radical rabbi from Tarsus, schooled in Jerusalem, a Pharisee of the Pharisees concerning the law, blameless, and yet he counted it all as rubbish that he may know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. Lord, we pray for anyone here who does not have a personal relationship with you, that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin and their need for repentance and a Savior. We thank you, Lord, for the glorious truth in verse 38, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Pray for Pastor Wayne as he preaches this morning. Help us not only to know this word of God, but also the, word, the God of the word. We pray for your missionaries and today's offering that would use it, you would use it to increase your kingdom. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, Amber. Let's take our hymn books once more and stand and turn to number 79, and we'll sing the Scottish Psalter based on Psalm 23, The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. Number 79, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. hope you do know Jesus Christ is your shepherd. We're going to look at Christ as he's proclaimed in Hebrews chapter 8. Brian, thanks for noting this text here in our reading just happens to coincide what we're going through. Core to the message that was preached, what is being proclaimed is forgiveness of sin by everyone who believes, that is, having faith in Christ. You're freed, if you remember from Acts 13 in his reading, verse 39, freed from what the law of Moses couldn't free you from. And we'll address that again in Hebrews chapter 
8, it's very consistent. It is only Christ who can free you from sin. You are keeping ritual, you are keeping law, rules, regulations, all of that. While that might be good, it isn't good enough. Because in the end, you're not keeping them. I'm not keeping them. There's only one who ever kept them, all, Christ. And to be guilty of one is to be guilty of all. And the wages of sin is death. So, hence, Christ freed. This is the preaching, this is apostolic preaching. And if you haven't been with us, I remind you that, indeed, uh, this has been, uh, at least my take, on the book of Hebrews, that it is essentially a, an exemplar of a first-century sermon. I think it happened to be preached by Paul and recorded by Luke. The wording is that way. It's preserved for us, but nevertheless, it's an exemplar of the content of the message that you would have heard. Here, it is within a Hebrew congregation. Those are the first who would come to Christ. Remember, the apostles went forward, they preached in these synagogues, and although they were turned away by many and suffered great danger, there were many, however, who did turn to Christ. Churches were established. And the problem here in Hebrews that he's addressing and warning this particular audience is that if you go back to Judaism, if you adopt the culture of our day, which it was permeated, this is what everyone believed and everyone was doing, if you do that, you are going backwards, not forward. And as good as all that might be, there's no redemption in it. The whole point was to point to redemption. The covenant that is being addressed, which we'll get to and highlight some aspects of this covenant as to why it is better, that is the new covenant, compared to the Mosaic covenant, now referred to as the old covenant, it's better because it, it has a better promise. And encapsulated in the reading that Brian did, it, that there's no freedom in the Mosaic covenant. Doesn't mean it's bad, and we'll address that. But there's no salvation there. It only can point out that you are a sinner. The new covenant that is established in chapter 8 and is described, chapter 8, and beginning in verse 6, it says that it is a better covenant. Leading up to this, remember the preacher began by saying Christ is better, and he enumerated all the things that they knew, all the things that they experienced. Christ was better than them all. And let me tell you this, anything that you find, Christ is better. That's the point. If you need nothing else, understand the supremacy of Christ. This is why we preach Christ, why we proclaim Christ. He's better. The book of Hebrews is going to explain that indeed it is this Christ who is the mediator between God and man, the only one that could be, the one that would be favorable on both sides of the equation. Perfect because he's God, and perfectly because he is a sinless man. And so he and he alone can stand in the gap. This covenant, the new covenant, that he establishes and refers to here 
in Hebrews 8 is, is better. It's better because it has better promises. It's contrasted with the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant or the law. That was always intended to be temporary. The New Covenant is eternal. Notice in verse 8, he finds fault with them. In verse 8 of chapter 8, he finds fault. And behold, a new one, new covenant, is coming. As we've talked about before, the fault isn't in the covenant itself. It's in the people, their sin. He says, I'm, this is quoting from Jeremiah, a prophet that they would have known, respected. And we unpacked that last week about a new covenant coming forward in a time of hopelessness pointed to a future day. Well, that day is now in which it's realized. Verse 13, by speaking of a new covenant, he says he makes the first one obsolete. So you understand how relevant it is to the people in his audience. Why are you going back to the old covenant? Because it is obsolete. He's made a new one. And it was promised that this would come. And not only that it just happens to be new and in a different way, it is better. As Christ is better. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was intended, as I mentioned, to be temporal. It, was, it had benefit given to them. There's always benefit in, in laws to set aside some sort of way to suppress evil, if you will. There are penalties to violating the law, and under their economy there were. In fact, if you go study the Ten Commandments, all of them except the last one explicitly has the penalty for breaking them. You know what they are? Death. Okay? That's a pretty tall standard. No wonder people lower the bar because they're not getting over it. But it does suppress evil. Laws have a tendency to do that, but it can't resolve evil. It can't solve them. What it does, it it has a benefit to suppress it, but it also has a benefit then to look for relief from it. We call that grace, God's unmerited favor. So the law functions in that way to reveal at least the need for some redemption from the penalty which you are worthy of receiving. The third aspect of that law which benefited them and does even now, it does reflect the very character of God, godly virtues, if you will. Virtues by which we are to uh, um, implement in our own life, and as we'll understand, that is only done by faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, when he refers to the fault here, it isn't something wrong with the law, it is something wrong with us. Paul would remind us in Romans 7.12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. That's how you must think about the law. 
It is a perfect law. It, there's no imperfection in it. The imperfection is us. That's our problem. I'm unholy. I'm unrighteous. And I'm evil. I don't like to think in those terms because I normally compare myself to other people by which I might think I'm holy, righteous, and good. Because I can always find somebody lesser than me. But that isn't the standard. The standard is perfection. Oh, here's the standard. Look to Christ. I don't measure up. So what is it? how does it function? Paul would explain to the church of Galatia that it is like your teacher, your guardian, to move you and point you to one who is holy, righteous, and good. And Paul would say, and I'll just read it for you, Galatians 3.24. You can stay in Hebrews. We'll be there to read the text in a moment. Paul would say, the law in 3.24 of Galatians was our guardian. That word could mean teacher as well. Our guardian or teacher. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It's pointing out all the problems in us and pointing all the solutions that are in Christ. That's what it's doing. But now that faith has come, now that we, we believe, we're not under that guardian in that way. We're not looking to that for any kind of uh, merit before God. We're, we're, doing, we're looking at what? We're looking at Christ. He says, for in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. And as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The baptism here is referring to a spiritual immersion and union with Jesus Christ, described also as putting on Christ, as you will, the righteous garments of Jesus Christ. You must believe. You must receive. But that is brought about by Christ. I'm reminded of this passage in John. First part of John, it explains this, because sometimes this might trouble some folks, so I want to be clear. I'll just read the text for you. John chapter 1, John reminds us that Christ comes to his own, but his own doesn't receive him, verse 11. But all who did receive him, receive would be the same thing as believe, okay? Accept, we might use. We, we use that term, that's fine. You need to accept Jesus Christ, you need to believe Jesus Christ, you need to receive Christ. That's it. Then that's true. But all who did receive them, who believed in his name, another way to express it, then he gives the right to become children of God. So how do they get this right? By their receiving, by their acceptance, by their believing? No, no, no. That is the result of a new life. He says in verse 13 of John 1, they were then born. You, you know he's going to get into born again in chapter 3. They were born, born from above. Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a supernatural miracle of God's grace granted. 
That's who believes. That's who expresses that. The preacher's message here to this church then, to the Hebrews, is to recognize the spiritual dynamic by, by which you are brought to salvation. And not to establish any of that by the virtues of the flesh, but of the Spirit of God. And as I mentioned, the good news of the gospel is Jesus has come. He has come in the flesh. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has made appeasement, propitiation, or atonement, if you will, by his blood. And this blood, this sacrifice is called the blood of the new covenant to which we are addressing here in Hebrews chapter 8. It's not a covenant of the flesh, but of the spirit. It's not a covenant of works, but of grace. The new covenant is is all of God, granted to us by his grace. It is expressed and realized through the instrumentality of faith. Faith is just a response to God's dynamic work in the heart, which will be addressed in the text of this new covenant. And that we need to recognize. It isn't our doing, it is God's. You do believe because he has changed your heart. And if you ever grasp that reality as communicated in the scripture, as illuminated by the Holy Spirit, it will change everything about life and how you feel about other people and how you might go about life. This is critical to know. But don't take my word for it. Let's dive into the text and we'll look at better promises and probably just the first aspect of this promise and I'll see if I can get that through in a single part. But I do want to read this in context because here he's addressing, um, in Hebrews 8, verse 6, he, he's addressing the comparison between the Old and New Covenant. And I want you to look at this carefully as we begin this section. And this New Covenant, of course, is the one he's referring to that is promised by prophet Jeremiah. Verse 6 of Hebrews 8. But as it is, Christ obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. We'll look at those promises in just a moment. Then he goes back, for that, for that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they didn't continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make. With the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Pay attention to this closely. I will put my laws into their mind. 
and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And it will in just a few years. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you give us insight into your holy word. May the truth of the covenant made by Christ through his precious blood be that which satisfies us and draws us closer to you to embrace the beauty of who you are and particularly in the forgiveness of sins to which we are eternally grateful and thankful and thankful even more that you continue intercessing on our behalf pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned here, you note this first covenant in verse 7, the Mosaic covenant is said to have fault. The fault um, is not in the covenant itself. It's in the problem of mankind and most notably the heart. Laws can't change lawbreakers. I'm not suggesting we don't have laws. As I've already mentioned, there's a value to the law. It does suppress evil. That's good. It can reveal guilt. But the key thing to note is it has no redemptive quality about it to change the heart of man. Legislators constantly pass new laws all the time, and good for them. But they never solve the problem. You ever think about that? It it never gets fixed. Maybe they can just come up with a better law, and so they try. Or we'll do an amendment, or add this and that. And again, I'm not dismissing it. Laws have a great benefit. It, It suppresses evil, but it doesn't stop it. What has to happen is a change of heart. And that can only be done by God and God alone. Jeremiah would say that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. You may have remembered the translation, desperately wicked, similar concept. Who can understand it? But the, the point is, the sick here in the ESV means incurable. The wicked, the same thing. In other words, it, it can't be changed in and of itself and on its own. That, that's the condition of mankind. And, and deceitful so much that even David would cry out in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. I mean, that's part of our problem. And I hope you do pray that way. I don't see it. I look in the mirror. Everything looks fine. Our mirror is really blurry. (laughs) We see through a glass darkly. It's really hard to do that self-examination, isn't it? And that's why we have the Word of God. 
which he's already said in chapter 4, that it, it cuts to the quick, doesn't it? Like a two-edged sword. It, it cuts right to the bone. It can get there because it, it is perfect. It is precise. So what's going to make the change? Where will rescue, where will redemption come from? It must come from Christ and him alone. And that is the concept of this, of this new covenant. New in that it is now being fully declared. Prophesied by the prophets of old. Proclaimed by the apostles, but accomplished by Christ. Notice, if you're in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10, this, this covenant that was prophesied about, that this preacher now is proclaiming, he references Jeremiah, it says, God is saying, I will do this. I will make with the house of Israel after those days. We, we already looked at it. Those were the days of punishment, if you will, before they were to go into the Babylonian captivity. But there was hope even in the midst of, of that in that there would be redemption. God made the covenant, and why this is better is because he will fulfill it. The, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it, it, it had uh, obligations that were given. You do this, and I will bless. If you don't, you'll be cursed. Cursings and blessings. This is totally different covenant. It's totally better. It's totally better because it has the redemptive quality to it where it can actually change the heart, which the law cannot do ever. Notice here all of the I wills. He makes the covenant, and then beyond that, here's the, the, what I would refer to as the benefits that he's getting to, the better promises. What better promises? Verse 10 I will put my laws. He's going to put them in a different place. Second part of verse 10, I will be their God. Which, what will God want to do with any of us? Or any of them? Me. I will teach them. Verse 11, that's, that I will is implied by, by they're not going to have to teach. The teach isn't giving information. It's, it's a supernatural awareness of the truth. This is something I can't accomplish. I can sit there, read the text, I can explain the text, I put out all these little points, but I'm not going to enable you to see the significance of it. That is a dynamic work of God's grace. Or somebody goes from death to life. From it doesn't really mean much to me, now it means everything to me. This is something we can't accomplish, the, 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 the law can't accomplish, God can, and he says, I will then teach them 
the significance of what this is and who I am. Verse 12, notice the I will, I will be merciful. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. Every day is full of mercy, isn't it? And then this remember, I will remember not. It isn't that God forgets anything. He can't. He's God. The remember is the idea. He's not going to hold it against you. And people hold stuff against one another all the time. I understand we're sinful, wicked people. But God doesn't. That's distinctive. Because he held it against Christ, who atoned for everyone. What a merciful, great, glorious God. Well, I don't even know if I can get done with this introduction on the first point, but we'll try, okay? It's okay. I'm going to walk you through. We'll see. I'm going to walk through some of this text, and we'll see, just see how it unfolds. And, and I'll end at some point before dinner tonight. This first I will in verse 10 is, is really what I'm focused on, I guess, with the time remains today, where he says, I'm going to put this law, in the laws, my laws, into their minds and then write them on their hearts. This is why it's better. That that was not part of the first covenant, the, the, the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. The second covenant, this new covenant, that's a distinctive here. And I, know, I want you to see this idea. You see the word mind, and you see the word heart. He says, I'm going to put, put this in, in their mind, and I'm going to write this on their heart. It, it's kind of a poetic way to, to describe one and the same thing, slightly different. Okay? We don't want to get too detailed in the nuance, but, but grasp that here then this, this law, which is holy, righteous, and good, the distinction and why this covenant is better, that this is God doing this. He's going to change their mind. That's what I'm talking about, the supernatural change of mind. The, the word here, mind, in the Greek, it talks about the, the idea of thinking, how you think. Maybe you could Consider it similar to a worldview. How, how does that change? Is it, is it through just additional information? No. Your worldview gets changed radically by God's gracious covenant. Changes their mind. Changes their thinking. And then the second aspect here, <coughs> again, I agree it's parallel, but it just expresses the same idea in a different way. Uh, it, it, it is put it in their mind, right? And then write it on their heart. Heart, the word here, is typically used of the... Uh, we, we, we think of it sometimes as the seat of emotions in a metaphorical sense. Here, it's more than that. It would include that to some degree, but, but mostly it's talking about the inner man, okay? which would be your, your, your mind, your will, and your emotions, all of it. That something inside the inner self, again, just a different way to express. It changes the mind and changes the heart. And he's going to write it there. God promises to do that. 
And by the way, his promise isn't wishful thinking like you and me. I mean, we promise a lot of stuff, but there's contingencies because of conditions that could occur that prevent us from fulfilling those obligations, right? The, the weather, an accident, an incident. Maybe we're just not mindful. Well, God is not like that. He controls the weather. <laughs> He's not worried about it. You understand? So, really, God's promises are simply the revelation of his decree, what, what he has determined and decided to do. It's a promise for our part. We can hang on to it because God has disclosed it. And he's given the promise in the form of this ironclad agreement, this covenant, and the covenant is not contingent upon us. It is contingent on God alone. He is the one who said, I will, I will, I will. So this promise will be fulfilled because God is doing it and he is in control of it all. Imagine yourself there in in this audience to whom this was first given, who, you know, he's telling them first, look, what are you going to go back to the old covenant for there was a promise of the new and the new has come and the new is better and that's what he's pointing out now it's better just by this illusion of of writing in the mind and and um, writing on the heart should I say and putting it in the mind the mosaic code by contrast is external the new covenant is internal. Do you see the difference? And you see the imagery he brings up? The, the Mosaic covenant most notably is summarized and pointed out and featured, if you will, in the Ten Commandments on Sinai. And they were written on tablets of stone. God wrote them on stone. They're external. You can find that in Exodus 24. God did write it, and he wrote it for their instruction. The problem is, it's not in their mind. It's not in their heart. that They can see it, and God gave it to them, and it is true, it is right, but it's all external. What needs to occur is something internal, and that's the promise of the new covenant and why it is better. We are obliged to obey God. Those regulations that were given to that particular economy at that particular time, which reflected the glory of God, was required. But there was no empowerment in and of itself to fulfill the demands. That's why it became a guardian, a teacher, to point that you don't have the ability to accomplish this. You need to look to Christ. Well, Christ has come. (laughs) So we still look at him. The new covenant empowers the believer to obey. It empowers the believer to repent. It empowers the believer to faith, to receive, to accept. 
You know why? Because there's an internal change of mind or heart or inner being. There is something dynamically different that has a different desire that now wants to obey. Let me point you to Ezekiel, if you wish. Ezekiel 36, if you want to look at it. Here, the new covenant is expressed in a little different words, but carries along with it the same concept. Um, and we may walk you around a couple texts here, but I want you to see Ezekiel 36 and verse 25. And by the way, the, the background and understanding of this passage, which is really a, a, a reflection of the new covenant in, in Jeremiah 31, this will help you understand when Jesus looks at a Jew Nicodemus in John 3 face to face and he tells him you must be born again you must be born of the water and of the flesh this is what he's referring to a change of heart a change of mind a cleansing from within not external something that changes everything and here it is in the text promise verse 25 of ezekiel 36 i will sprinkle clean water on you this is speaking of cleansing and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. Ultimately, we think of an idol as a little object now. It's your self-will. That's the idol of your heart. You, you're number one. And I'm going to cleanse you from that. I will give you a new heart. <laughs> Same idea. A new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That is, give you life contrasted to a stony heart of non-life or death. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This first aspect here speaks of how this is accomplished in the change of heart of the unbeliever. It's a promise to first cleanse the heart by the Holy Spirit who applies the benefits of the atonement. God's wrath then is said to be appeased or propitiated the old covenant, the law, portrayed this symbolically. The promise of Christ is to do this in reality. His blood actually accomplishes that. Keep your finger in Ezekiel only because I, that's point number one. And I want to show you 
a couple more if we have time. So keep your finger in there, but you might want to reference Romans 8 with that. Because of this cleansing from within, this promise, this sprinkling of clean water, cleaning from all uncleanliness, as it talks about, and I will cleanse you. This is the sanctification accomplished by God. It's God who does that. And because of that, in verse 1 of chapter 8 in Romans, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It, it is only in Christ that you will be cleansed. The, the, cleansed from what? Your, your, your law-breaking. It's going to be taken away by Christ and cleansed. Then there, there is no more guilt. That's what you do with your guilt. And we're guilty because we violate his law, which is holy, just, and good. But, but how will that be resolved? It is in Christ. And notice the phraseology that this, this, is, this is throughout the scriptures, and I hope you see it the more and more you read the text. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Free in, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. That's what we're saying. See how consistent this is in all of Scripture. The law couldn't save. How could you be saved? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that, note this, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Oh, wait a minute. Now, now you're asking me to obey. Yes, always. But not in the flesh, but in the spirit, in the changed heart, in the changed mind, through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through the flesh. And he says that it, it, it will be fulfilled. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's how it's accomplished. And the spirit is capitalized because he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, immediately, I have to agree. I struggle with this. He talks about his struggle. Paul did in Romans 7. He calls himself a wretched man. I do the things that I don't want to do. But there's something inside me that wants to do right, that wants to obey, that wants to confess, that wants to forgive, that, that wants to follow Christ. Look for that change of heart and desire and inner man. Don't look at a recitation of, a, of facts and, and ideas and ide ideology. It, all of that is part of it and it's true for sure. You, you need to have an apprehension of the truth, but it needs to get a hold of you where you have this inner man that wants something different by which you're convicted by the Holy Spirit when you step out of line. 
And you're brought to humility. You're brought to Christ. And by his power, you engage in doing those things by the Spirit. You know, you've heard of it, haven't you? Love, joy, peace, self-control. Fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Like apples growing off a tree. It's natural to one who is in Christ to exemplify those things that look like Christ. Admittedly not in perfection in this life, but you should see something there, a desire. And yeah, we're called to strengthen it and to build it up and so forth, to, to grow in grace and knowledge, that is to mature for sure, but there is something deep within and God who changes the heart. Jump over to verse 33 of the same chapter then. Given the standing that we have then in Christ, verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's the chosen by God. That's the people who are born again, who believe who have a change of heart, have a change of mind. So who's going to bring a charge? It's God who justifies, that is, declares righteous. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He already paid the wages of sin for those that are in Christ. More than that, he was raised. And he's at the right hand of God. Remember how... Um, Hebrews begins in chapter 1. After he made propitiation, that's payment, appeasement for our sin, what did he do? He ascended to the right hand of God. And what is he doing as the preacher unfolds this in Hebrews? He is doing what? Notice here, he is indeed interceding for us even right now. Functioning as a high priest. ever interceding, ever praying. And so then this, the, the believer then is secure. No charges because Christ has already died. No, no charges. More than that, he's, he's raised. And more than that, he has ascended into the glory of God. I'll just have to read this because I love this text and I hope you take it home with you and meditate on it from time to time. Then, beloved, who will separate us from the love of Christ? That's really what matters, isn't it? So tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword. A lot of problems in this life. But if you're in Christ, you couldn't be more beloved. And Paul quotes, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but know in these instances we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's an amazing security, isn't it? I'll just make two more points and I'll finish, maybe. 
Did you keep your finger in Ezekiel 36? He mentions in verse 26 that he's going to give you a new heart. Cleanse, number one, two, a new heart. That's what we've been referring to. It's the concept this preacher Hebrews is trying to tell his congregation. It's a heart described here in comparison, a heart of stone that goes to flesh from death to life, from something that has no value. Could you imagine your fit? I mean, you, you get the imagery, right? Could you, could you imagine if, if in your chest cavity you had a stone in there instead of a heart? And, and by the way, I just think about it all the time. This little thing that's in here, Ken, it's sitting there beating all the time, isn't it? I mean, as old as, well, at least I am. <laughs> the older I get, the more this is profound to me. This, this little guy is just going all the time. That's the imagery. Life. It's accomplished by God. Paul would tell the church at Corinth, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. That's the imagery here of a new heart. The promise of the new covenant. A new person on the inside. And finally, if you're still in Ezekiel, um, I just want to make one more point about that. The, The cleansing is there. The, the change of heart is in there, and that it's God who will do this, by the way. God who changes the very heart and nature of man. He's going to remove it, put a new one. And then, did you see verse 27? This is a promise. This is from the Old Testament. This is, this is a prophetic word, if you will, of a, a unique dynamic realized after the ascension of Jesus Christ in John 14 says I'm not going to leave you alone I'm not going to leave you like an orphan I'm I'm going to send another of the same essence God to dwell within you and here it is in Ezekiel as well do you see it I'll put my spirit in you This, this is the Holy Spirit that that empowers then those that have been cleansed from sin, given a new heart, a new disposition, and then to carry it out. It isn't as if you're just now somehow, oh, well, I'm going to carry on by my own power and through the flesh. No, you couldn't accomplish anything. The promise is he will put his spirit within you. The empowerment is of the Holy Spirit then to fulfill the righteous commands that are called upon. It is, it is all God's doing that changes someone from a sinner to a saint. I know we don't like to refer to one another that way because it sounds proud. But Paul had no problem talking to the people that churches. Go read his letters, epistles, we call them letters to the churches, to the saints at Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, Rome. 
They're not saints because they try real hard and do real good. It's because God has changed their heart. He has cleansed them and put his spirit to dwell with them, his people, forever. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for the grace that has been given to us in Christ Jesus, for the mercy that you have abundantly given in the forgiveness of our sin. But you have not left us alone. You've empowered us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that our hearts would rely on that strength, the strength that you provide to accomplish what we desire to do, that your name would be magnified. I pray that you'd be exalted even this day and the days ahead as we proclaim the beauty and glory of your grace and mercy. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We typically give you a moment now to think on these things. So privately where you're at, you can pray. You can respond to Christ in any way he's spoken to you. Um, Take a moment now. Father, I pray that you draw us close, increase our holy affections to magnify your name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jerry's going to come and lead us 554 in your hymn book as the, the deer. There's a song that's based on Psalm 42. As the deer longs for the streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I hope that's your prayer as well. Let's all stand and turn to 554.
Let's go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.